Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Brisha Meadows' case continues to develop. The 15-year-old shot her abusive father in self-defense and subsequently faced life in prison without parole. Last week, she accepted a plea deal that will allow her to leave jail by early 2018. Her support team ascribes the short sentence to ongoing mass mobilization in solidarity with Brisha. The Kentucky Department of Juvenile Justice is shutting down the Lincoln Village Regional Juvenile Detention Center in Hardin County. 16-year-old Ginny McMillan died while she was being held prisoner there last year. At the time, the state claimed her death was from natural causes, and it is now asserting that the closure is unrelated to her death. Community organizers, however, were quick to make the logical connections. Scott Roberts from Color of Change said, We are happy that not another child will die while caged in the care of the abusive and violent staff at Lincoln Village Juvenile Detention Center. It was a hotbed of corruption, neglect, and abuse that is sadly prevalent in juvenile facilities around the country. We recently reported on the move of our friend Marius Mason. A statement from FightToxicPrisons.org has more detail. They state, On May 8th, Marius Mason was moved out of the Carswell Federal Medical Center's administrative unit into general population. While this is a far cry from freedom, for the first time in nearly seven years, Marius is able to see the sky and feel the grass beneath his feet. This welcome news comes weeks before the Fight Toxic Prisons convergence to be held in the city of Denton, Texas, near FMC Carswell. The environmental activists and prison abolitionists organizing the conference have identified Carswell, located on a Fort Worth military base, as a prime example of a toxic prison worthy of national attention. Carswell has long been the subject of complaints about general conditions, as well as being of special concern due to its administrative unit, which has housed political prisoners and individuals suffering from serious mental illness. Anti-nuclear activist Helen Woodson was held in the facility until her release in 2011, and other political prisoners, including Afia Siddiqui and Anna Belen-Montes, remain there today. Since Mason's confinement in the administrative unit, advocacy efforts from his community and his lawyer have been ongoing. Advocacy work has included not only efforts to have him moved from the overtly restrictive environment of the unit, but a successful campaign to secure gender-affirming hormone treatment, making him the first known prisoner authorized to begin female-to-male gender transition in federal custody. Also during this time in the administrative unit, the Bureau of Prisons has adjusted its policies on solitary confinement. Carswell administrators gave no explanation for Marius's redesignation. Needless to say, friends and supporters believe the move is long overdue. Shortly after his sentencing in 2010, Marius was moved from FCI Waseca to the highly restrictive administrative unit at FMC Carswell. After litigation, a FOIA request yielded document indicating that his redesignation was due to his quote, radicalizing and recruiting other inmates. No specific information was provided about why an inmate might be placed into the unit or how Marius might be able to transition out of it. Indeed, more information is available about the Bureau of Prisons Communication Management Unit, or CMUs, 
created with the stated purpose of monitoring alleged so-called terrorists than about the administrative unit at Carswell. For several years, Marius's lawyer, Moira Meltzer-Cohn, attempted without success to get the Bureau of Prisons to provide a written statement justifying the decision to keep him in the administrative unit. According to Meltzer-Cohn, the few written documents about the facility's administrative unit state that it exists in order to coerce compliance with institutional safety. Upon successful behavioral modification, the inmate presumably is to transition back to general population. Marius remained in the administrative unit for years with an almost flawless disciplinary record. The facility's redesignation of Marius into general population therefore seems to be a belated but welcome compliance with the BOP's own stated goals. We are hopeful that this move may mean better control over his diet and more reliable mail service. Meltzer Cohn stated, quote, We wish Marius a lot of luck in this transition. While we may never know the reason for it, this does draw attention to the fact that the Bureau of Prisons finally seems to be acting in accordance with its own policy on administrative segregation in Mason's case after years of avoiding it. The death penalty is the barest, most explicit aspect of state violence. Relatively few people are sentenced to death, and even fewer are actively legally killed by the state, but the death penalty persists as an assertion of the sovereign right to take life or let live. This week on KiteLine, we'll begin examining the history and experience of death row with contributions from Bomani Shakur, a prison rebel sentenced to death for his alleged role in the Lucasville uprising, and from Patrick Kersley, who had faced the death penalty, was instead sentenced to life without parole, and who has recently been exonerated. We will also share a historical analysis of the institution. Our goal is to begin understanding execution as a strategy within the broader prison system and repressive apparatus. A contributor for KiteLine recently sent us this analysis of the death penalty. 31 states in the U.S. currently practice capital punishment. In each one of these, lethal injection is not only a legal method, but the preferred one. Since it was first introduced in the 1982 Texas execution of Charles Brooks Jr., the method has now become generalized and marketed as a supposedly humane way of putting a prisoner to death. Everywhere it is used, the basic protocol is the same. Three chemicals are intravenously fed to a gurney-strapped prisoner. The first, a sedative, sodium thiopental, is used to induce unconsciousness. The second, meant to induce muscle paralysis, is pancuronium bromide. And finally, potassium chloride, a drug which stops the heart of the victim. The entire process invokes the image of a sanitized medical procedure, but one where the object is not healing but ending the life of the patient. The dark irony is not lost on the medical community at large. Indeed, the participation of medical practitioners in executions, or as the architects of execution methods, has a turbulent and contradictory history. The most recent iteration of this controversy settles on the pharmaceutical industry, specifically the manufacturers of the chemicals used in lethal injections. In 2016, the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer moved to prevent the use of its chemicals in executions, blocking the last open market source for states to acquire the deadly drugs. Pfizer joins a list of over 20 corporations which have taken similar measures, essentially forcing states with legal executions to find loopholes, more often than not failing in their endeavors. Which brings us to Arkansas. Prior to last month, the state of Arkansas had not executed a single inmate since 2005 but the impending expiration of its store of mitozolem, a sedative equivalent to sodium theopental, and the first drug in the three-drug cocktail, convinced state officials that they should expedite pending executions. Thus, it was shockingly proposed that it would execute eight of its inmates over a fifth of the death row population between April 17th and April 27th. The proposal produced disbelief among anti-death penalty activists and a slew of litigation from drug manufacturers attempting to prevent the use of their chemicals in the executions. 
Despite the backlash, Arkansas put to death four of the eight men, Liddell Lee on April 20th, Marcel Williams and Jack Jones on April 24th, and Kenneth Williams on April 27th. The horrifyingly cold efficiency of the execution of these four men in such a short period of time forces many uncomfortable questions about the attempt to abolish the death penalty, about the prison system, and about the possibility of reform in general. The history of lethal injection and the participation of medical practitioners in executions sheds a revealing light on these problems. It was in the late 19th century that lethal injection was first proposed as a method for executions. The idea was the result of a New York State commission whose sole intent was to discover, quote, the most humane practical method of execution known to modern science, unquote. The proposal was rejected, however, with opposition coming primarily from the medical community who feared that the use of the newly invented hypodermic needle in executions would create an aura of fear around the device in the general public. New York opted for the electric chair instead. It wasn't until the 1970s and following decades of botched executions implemented by the electric chair that the idea of lethal injection would resurface in the United States. In the intervening years, the use of lethal injection for execution became familiar as a technique of mass murder being widely implemented in Nazi death camps. Moreover, the United Kingdom rejected lethal injection precisely on the basis of its inhumanity and the necessity of implicating medical professionals in executions themselves. It was Oklahoma which introduced the method to the United States. Following the reintroduction of the death penalty in 1977, State Representative of Oklahoma Bill Wiseman had become concerned about the high cost and perceived cruelty of the electric chair. He chose to reach out to the medical community to conceive of a new method of execution. He struggled at first, with many doctors recognizing the violation of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm if they participated in executions. Nevertheless, he found two willing candidates in Dr. J. Chapman and Dr. Stanley Deutsch, the two men who would invent the three-drug protocol used today. Neither doctor had any experience with anesthesiology or toxicology. They only knew that the drugs they chose were sufficient to kill a human being. According to Chapman, I didn't do any research. It's just common knowledge. Doctors know potassium chloride is lethal. Why does it matter why I chose it? We should pause here to reflect that the most commonly cited reason for the general use of lethal injection is its supposed humaneness. But one glance at the history of its implementation reveals that, first, it was rejected for decades on the grounds of its inhumanity, and secondly, it was introduced primarily as a cost-saving procedure. Debates around execution procedures never have had much to do with the lived reality of being executed. The question of a humane way of killing people is just an ideological subterfuge for the core issue of the necessity or non-necessity of capital punishment. When people ask, what is the most humane way of killing someone? What they are not asking was the real effect of capital punishment on society, and why is it needed? Deterrence of further crime? A reminder of the severity of the crime committed? to establish that the crime struck at the sacred order of society? Whether supporters of capital punishment judge execution methods to be humane or not has nothing to do with the humanity of the victims and everything to do with repressing the problem of cruelty from the debate over the utility of executions. Thus, lethal injection was introduced and is considered by many to be a humane way of killing someone, despite the numerous stories of painful, writhing deaths it's caused, up to and including the deaths of Liddell Lee, Jack Jones, Marcel Williams, and Kenneth Williams. It took 12 minutes for the state of Arkansas to kill Liddell Lee. It was the kind of execution by lethal injection that the state wishes to illustrate in the minds of the public, quick, cold, and largely painless. But the record shows that this is rarely the case. States like Arkansas use universal protocols for the execution procedure, despite the variability of the condemned's physiology. More often than not, this leads to botched executions in which IV teams struggle to find veins or dosages are too low to fully sedate the prisoner. 
According to media present at the execution of Jack Jones, the IV team tasked with preparing Jones for execution struggled for at least 45 minutes to install a third intravenous line into his neck. This process included at least 15 attempts at puncturing a vein. After the stream of failures, it was chosen to simply use two lines to inject all three drugs. The torturous nature of the attempts to prepare Jones led the lawyers of Marcel Williams to attempt to stay his execution that same night. Their request was declined, and witnesses claimed that Williams was clearly not fully subdued after the sedative was applied, likely meaning he was at least partially conscious for the remainder of the execution. Then, on April 27th, Kenneth Williams became the fourth and final victim put to death. Eyewitnesses claimed that Williams, who was sedated in the middle of delivering his final words, writhed, moaned, and groaned throughout the entire 13-minute procedure. Despite the witnesses' statements, however, Governor of Arkansas Asa Hutchinson and other state spokespeople see no need for a special investigation, and one official declared that the execution was, quote, not cruel, unusual, botched, or torture, end quote. The debate over the humaneness of lethal injection is not an objective, fact-driven discourse independent of the ideological positions of its participants. The opposition of organizations like the American Medical Association to their members participating in the death penalty comes from the contradiction it poses to the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Some medical professionals have suggested a return to a more antiquated form of execution like a firing squad, now only legal in Idaho, to absolve the medical community from responsibility in carrying out executions. The problem is further complicated when we consider that many inmates have demanded the presence of a medical practitioner to be present to ensure against botched executions. The problem we are facing goes beyond the problem of lethal injection and immerses us in the conflict of reform in liberal democratic institutions. Reforms often have unintended results. The introduction of lethal injection was in itself a result of a constitutional push to end the death penalty outright. After the execution of Kenneth Williams, Governor Hutchinson said, The long path of justice ended tonight. Citizens can reflect on the last two weeks with confidence that our system of laws in this state has worked. For the governor, this is the main justification for instituting his plan to kill eight people, which is what some have called an assembly line of death. What he and other apologists of capital punishment see in the deaths of these four men is a reminder of the rule of law and civil society. This is the point of view that allows them to see justice where others see tyranny, even when they witness the same event like the death of Kenneth Williams. Some are confident that the growing opposition of pharmaceutical companies to allowing their drugs to be used in executions will force states to either abandon capital punishment or resort to other means which more viscerally express the brutality of execution, leading the general public to oppose capital punishment altogether. But as we've seen, it's not just the nature of the spectacle that informs one's view of the problem. It is more often the totality of their views on law, ethics, government, and the state. We have to ask if simple reform will be enough to challenge a practice that is deeply rooted in the very nature of the U.S. political imaginary. To end capital punishment, we may have to interrogate the legitimacy of the U.S. government itself. In the meantime, public opinion in favor of capital punishment continues to wane, and for the first time in the U.S., a majority oppose it. Pharmaceutical companies have effectively blocked the legal acquisition of drugs needed for execution, and it remains to be seen how states will respond. One thing is known. There are nearly 3,000 people in the United States on death row. These people may live out the rest of their lives awaiting execution, some may be rushed to the death chamber, and some will ultimately be proven innocent. Now we hear from two different people who share their experiences with death row. The first, Patrick Persley, is the subject of KiteLine episode 42. Patrick ended up with a natural life sentence when he put his fate in the hands of a judge rather than a jury. 
Here, he reads part of his essay, It Could Have Been Me, about his experiences being in Stateville during the executions of other inmates who suffered the fate he narrowly missed. I wound up in Stateville in 1995. The prison was still open, and the death penalty was still on the books and in full use. By 1999-2000, I wound up in a housing unit called G-Dorm. It was basically a privileged dorm setting where inmates were not locked in their cells, but were locked on a wing with a day room, a bathroom, and shower. There were two-man cells, three-man cells, four-man cells, and five-man cells. I was in a five-man cell. At this time, the state of Illinois was executing individuals quite rapidly. On some occasions, they even executed two people in one night. I became quite accustomed to being aware of individuals facing the penalty because the actual executions were carried out at Stateville in X House, also known as the Death House. As a means of almost a festive activity, the administration would provide fruit platters and other snacks to the reporters who came to show up, almost like holidays, like gala days, the gallows, when people were executed and people showed up and ate and enjoyed themselves. What the reporters did not eat was given to the inmates in Chidorm. This picked over fruit that platters, which had been sitting all day, smelled rancid at that time. But because the inmates hardly ever saw fresh fruit, they greedily grabbed the fruit. As also part of the festive activities and to sufficiently distract the inmate population from the actual activities of killing an individual at the behest of the death penalty, the inmates were provided packs of cookies in the chow hall Ginger snaps were everyone's favorite, how easily we could be placated. They also played movies, and on the nights of the execution, there would be black movies that the inmates had been clamoring to see for months. So I rejected this whole concept. During the times of the executions, I would often go to the day room late at night, 1, 2, 12 in the morning, and sit and stare out the window. I rejected this whole concept even while inmates were in their cells laughing and watching TV, eating their cookies and the rancid fruit. I rejected this because I knew that I missed the death penalty only by air. I remember sitting alone in the day room one particular evening, alone in my thoughts, lamenting my sentence, lamenting the fact that I had natural life, and also quite conscious of the fact that someone had just been put to death. I heard the crackle of gravel outside the window and I peered out into the night and there was a station wagon. It was the corner station wagon, the coroner's vehicle carrying the dead body out of there. The lights were off and they creeped out the back sally port stealthily under the cover of night. I just remember thinking to myself, that could have been me. Patrick wants you to know that you can reach him at patrickpersley4 at gmail.com or find out about his current projects at Free Patrick Persley on Facebook or Twitter. Next, we hear from Bamani Shakur about his time on death row. We heard more about Bamani's case in KiteLine episode 12. Here he is. My name is Keith Lamar. 
I'm a death row prisoner at the Ohio State Penitentiary in Youngstown, Ohio. In 1995, I was sentenced to death for a crime I did not commit. According to the state, I was said to have participated in the deaths of five inmates, inmates who were suspected of being informants. When I refused to become an informant myself and refused the state's offer of a plea bargain, I was prosecuted and prevented from presenting evidence of my innocence, even a statement from an actual perpetrator who admitted to killing someone for whom I was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death. I'm innocent. I didn't kill anyone during the uprising. And the state knew this. And they knew it because multiple witnesses came forward and pointed the finger at someone else. But because I was vocal in my criticisms of them and the way in which we were treated before and after the uprising, they decided to make an example out of me. And now they intend to kill me, strap me down to a cold gurney, and pump poison through my veins. I intend to stop them. Indeed, inasmuch as my life is not for them to take, I intend to fight them. And if you believe in my plight, I hope you will join me in this fight. Not just to undo what was done to me, but to undo the injustice of a system that is too often used as a weapon against the poor, against nameless, faceless individuals whose story we would never know or hear. Let's fight them together. Justice is not a privilege, it's a right. People are being killed who could be saved. Now, we share a few thoughts from someone who ran a campaign to address the role of pharmacists in executions. She talks about the ethical role of pharmacists and medical professionals participating in executions, as well as the contrast between lethal injection and other methods that have been used in the past, as well as public perception of lethal injection. There are lots and lots of stories about states that have written letters to, you know, two, three hundred pharmacists asking for assistance and getting responses from zero. So that, that's a pretty telling thing. The, the best argument in favor of uh, pharmacists participating in executions is similar to the best argument in favor of anesthesiologists doing it, uh, is that there would be much less likelihood of these awful botched executions which played a major role in the American Pharmacists Association um, passing this resolution, by the way, is, is that there were all these, these um, botched executions. And the response on, on that uh, from the American Anesthesiologists, um, American Board of Anesthesiology, and, and from the AMA, et cetera, is, is that, um, that that may be as it is, but it doesn't um, change the fact that Participating directly in an execution is contrary to the basic ethical code of the profession. So no, they can't do it. It's the American Medical Association, the American Public Health Association, the American Board of Anesthesiology, uh, even the Society of Correctional Physicians, that's doctors working in prisons, um, the American Nurses Association, the World Medical Association, they all have positions that prohibit their members from participating in executions, completely independent of whether or not they support having a death penalty. They're clearly alternative means of executing people, even, in my view, better means of executing people. Um, I would think that the firing squad, since we certainly have plenty of people in the U.S. who were uh, 
favor of the death penalty, willing to carry it out, and are expert marksmen um, and you know use firing squads. I think the reason why ending lethal injection ends up undermining executions, the death penalty as a whole, is because it is it seems ethically acceptable. We're just putting someone to sleep the way you put a dog to sleep or a cat to sleep. And that it's humane, they don't feel anything, etc. And this is clearly not, and actually this never was the case. If you look back, you can find lots of instances of botched executions, um, even when pharmaceutical companies were providing the good um, means of quick, quickly killing someone. Um, but with, with, with those means not existing anymore, that I think it, un, you know, it undermines the, the acceptability of the death penalty for some people. Now, there are lots of other people that would be perfectly happy with executions um, by firing squad or, you know, by hanging or, um, you know, electric chair, or whatever. But there, there, are, there are a lot of people who won't accept those more brutal means of executing people. And people ought to come to grips with what it is that, that they're doing uh, and uh, think think about the death penalty as something that is you know quite violent and, and brutal and then decide whether they're still in favor of it, um, which which many people would say they were still in favor of it. You know, another thing I want to point out is that, uh, that I, I mentioned before that there were plenty of botched executions until before modern times with using lethal injection. And so you, if you go back, you know, 10, 15 years, you can find plenty of, of botched executions. And, and that occurs for basically two reasons. One is that um, that doctors aren't willing to oversee it, and therefore you have often, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who were, you know, trying to find veins and trying to, you know, carry out these lethal ex executions. If you think I'm exaggerating, uh, there was a case in Florida that was maybe, I'm guessing, 15 years ago, where uh, you know the person who was was trying to, you know, inject the lethal things was like 19 years old and, and virtually untrained. So there's there's that reason for it not working very well, um, and. The other is before the American Pharmacists Association passed this resolution, there was a series of, of horrific executions that were taking place because most of your reputable pharmacists were already refusing to provide um, the drugs. So that it's those pharmacists who are providing these drugs um, that are quite frankly among the more desperate, least competent, uh, least respected pharmacists already which is why we continue having these you know, botched executions. I think one of the ones in Arkansas a couple of weeks ago was, was botched. Um, and there, there was an execution in Georgia that had to be on hold because um, just by looking at the drug, you could tell that it was all wrong. And you've got you know, not very good pharmacists who are providing these drugs, and that's why your outcome is, is going to be. So if you're the, the, the really ethical pharmacist, the person who really believes in his or her profession, already was declining to kill people with their drugs. We began this episode with a short reflection on the death penalty as a continuation of the ancient right of the sovereign to kill or let his subjects live. To finish, we would like to share some of Michel Foucault's thoughts on sovereign power, execution, and its relationship to other kinds of state violence. 
He argues here that the state has de-emphasized the death penalty as it has developed more potent tools for administering and manipulating its subjects to be optimally productive. On another level, I might have taken up the example of the death penalty. Together with war, it was for a long time the other form of the right of the sword. It constituted the reply of the sovereign to those who attacked his will, his law, or his person. Those who died on the scaffold became fewer and fewer in contrast to those who died in wars. But it was for the same reasons that the latter became more numerous and the former more and more rare. As soon as power gave itself the function of administering life, its reason for being and the logic of its exercise and not the awakening of humanitarian feelings made it more and more difficult to apply the death penalty. How could power exercise its highest prerogatives by putting people to death when its main role was to ensure, sustain, and multiply life to put this life in order? For such a power, execution was at the same time a limit, a scandal, and a contradiction. Hence, capital punishment could not be maintained except by invoking less the enormity of the crime itself than the monstrosity of the criminal, his incorrigibility, and the safeguard of society. One had the right to kill those who represented a kind of biological danger to others. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.